Welcome to Pop Psych 101, where we, licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad and licensed psychologist Dr. Haley Roberts, break down and analyze how mental health is represented in movies, shows, books, and across the pop culture and social media landscape. We will determine what lines up with real life and what is just pop culture fantasy. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am life business therapist Ryan Engelstad. Here as always with my co-host, Dr. Haley Roberts. Hello, you came in hot on that one. Well, I was trying to do my best like <laughs> carnival show dramatic barker oh, person. You did a great job. It made me smile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because that's a fun job where you just kind of get a hype hyped people up for a yeah. very mysterious show that's about to start. Yeah. Have you ever had to bark for anything? No, but it's funny. You know, I, I, I love like boardwalks and boardwalk games uh-huh. and stuff like that. So I always uh-huh. imagine like that I could be the guy who's like trying to get people to play some dumb game, but like uh-huh. really hypes it up unnecessarily yeah. just for my own enjoyment, probably yeah. more than theirs. But this yeah. is like a it's a whole thing, right? It's a whole like yeah. world. Well, and also like for comedy shows and things like that, like people will bark to try to get people to come in and I cannot do it. It is not my place at all. Well, <laughs> you're like, like on the street. Yeah. So like if you're like outside of a comedy show and like telling people like yeah. we're either at the bar that it's at or out on the yeah, street yeah. saying like, hey, we have a comedy show. Come on in. Check it out so not like I am not good at it at all (laughs) but what's interesting is like in college when we would have like the fairs for people to sign up for clubs I could absolutely get people to sign up for our club by just being like friendly but I think that's because the whole that was the whole vibe rather than me being this like lone person trying to convince people to do something yeah I think it's a vibe thing yeah yeah, because I, I don't I'm with you. I don't think I could do it on like a city street because every time I pass those guys by, I'm just like, mm-hmm. oh God, like I cringe for you uh-huh. that you have to be doing this right now. Uh-huh. But like boardwalk or college campus or maybe circus, you know, I could kind of see that because it's like part of a play in a setting that everyone is signed up for the same thing. Yeah. Whereas like city street, like people are there for all a million different reasons uh-huh. and most of them have nothing to do with why you're there yeah they're like leave us alone we're eating dinner <laughs> yeah please leave yeah. us alone <laughs> not interested yeah but yeah so so uh if in case it wasn't already clear we are talking today about a mm-hmm. uh, a carnival adjacent movie and a oscar nominated one at that and that is nightmare alley so nightmare alley which takes place in the 1940s when carnivals and circuses were actually things that happened like a normal form of entertainment Mm -hmm. probably for a lot of good reasons not so much anymore though yeah there's a lot of good reasons why it doesn't happen anymore yeah (laughs) yeah i thought you were saying that like they happened for a lot of good reasons but it doesn't happen anymore but you're saying they don't happen for a lot of good reasons yeah yes and i think most people are happy about that yeah yeah i um was always one of those kids who was super aware of animal rights and from Mm. little circuses and zoos and things like that just like fully turned me off because I was like this is not where animals belong and this is horrible and always hated it and interestingly enough the circuses that I went to the parts that I loved were the clowns like I loved clowns as a kid and that's like the thing that a lot of people are freaked out about but I'm not at all. I've always loved clowns, um, which makes sense that I'm now hugely into comedy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I always hated those kind of things. But like carnivals, like the games and the shows that are clearly for show, right? Like not degrading yep. to people or animals. I've always been fascinated by that kind of stuff. Like I think Molly's... um electricity show i would have been all about. yeah i would have been like how's she doing it how's this happening what's happening yeah 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 i, I kind of feel the same way like i was always super into magic like if there was a magic show and i was like around one of those things like as even even on the boardwalk today like if someone's on the you know side just 
doing sleight of hand, like I will yeah. always be down for that because it's the same kind of thing. Like, oh, what's going on? Like, I'm trying to mm-hmm. figure it out. But anytime animals always felt a little sad. Mm-hmm. And even like the quote unquote, the term that would have been used, like freak show, which I, you know, mm-hmm. I think I'm very even uncomfortable saying in today's world, where it's like, you know, people with unique talents or appearances uh-huh. were just like, oh, come look at this person. Ah, man. Yeah, it's really, it's really weird that that was a thing. Well, even like the tattooed men, right? Like there were some people that were tattooed on every inch of their body and it was come point and laugh basically. Even, you know, it's not something they were born with. It still is like using their body as a way to like degrade them or make them a show. And oh, no, mm mm-mm. Yeah, marvel at this person who doesn't look like you or anyone else you've ever seen. It's just like, okay, well, yeah, yeah. So, you know, (laughs) thankfully we've progressed in many ways where we don't have to deal with those sorts of things. But but I do think you and I can kind of relate on if there was a trick or if there was something kind of cool or unexplainable that wasn't Uh obviously degrading, like we were into that. And mentalism kind of falls somewhere in between where it's like someone's being tricked someone's being made the fool but but there's still an element of of magic going on so i was always like curious even if the whole time i didn't totally buy it so yeah i don't know about you but i'm 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 excited to kind of break down all this stuff which is yeah just close enough to what we do without (laughs) uh yeah without treading too closely Yeah, I think I agree. Like mentalism and things like that, I find so fascinating. But there's a difference between when is it a show and when is it a manipulation? And I think that's what we'll get into. All right. Well, right after this break, then we will break down Nightmare Alley. Hey everyone, Ryan here. No ad this week, but a quick request. We would love to know where you follow us. So if you wouldn't mind taking 10 seconds while you're listening to today's episode, reach out to us on your social media of choice. Say hi, say what's up, request an episode topic. We would love to hear from you. And now back to the episode. Pop Psych 101 discusses mental health as it is portrayed in pop culture media. And because of this, we often cover sensitive topics that can be triggering for some listeners. We also delve into the characters and plots of these stories, and therefore, spoilers abound. So please, use your discretion as you listen to the rest of the episode. Nightmare Alley is a 2021 American neo-noir psychological thriller film directed by Guillermo del Toro. And it stars Bradley Cooper as a charming and ambitious carnival worker with a mysterious past who takes big risks to boost his career. Also starring Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, Mary Steenbergen, and David Strathairn. So really great cast of characters anytime you have a a carnival you have to have like a fun group of, of actors they really nailed that with this yeah they really did yeah so and and you know again with del toro and you and i were talking about this just before it's like i associate him with like monster movies thinking like pan's labyrinth and what was the one with the merman like something about the water the shape of water the shape of water i think that's right yeah and that one that one best picture or something mm-hmm. i always associate him with these sorts of stories and and from the trailer i thought this was going to be that sort of story again like oh what's lurking beneath the the cage of you know where willem dafoe's character is is hiding you know something mysterious and amazing and turns out it's just people are terrible and and they are their own monsters <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Not to undersell it. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that's underselling it. I think that's I think that's the whole thing. And yeah. it's funny that you come out of the gate with it because I thought that this would be like a theme that we got to. <laughs> but yeah. Oh, well, we're like, going to break it down further. But yeah, yeah. 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 Like I think ultimately that's what it comes down to is that the way that the movie starts, it seems like it's going to be filled with monsters. And the yep. carny presenter at the beginning is like, you know is he man or is he beast or whatever I think ends up being the question for the whole movie is where does 
humanity end and being a monster begin. Yeah. Yeah. So a really fascinating, as we said, cast of characters, and we we are sort of introduced to them one by one as Stan, played by Bradley Cooper, goes through something that's not totally explained, and he's burning a house down, and then he joins essentially this traveling circus and it's totally not clear initially like who is this guy what's going on with him mm-hmm. I, I guess it is clear he he's burning a body we just don't know whose body or why mm-hmm. or what was going on in this house that he's sort of trying to escape from but all over the course of the movie we're trying to figure out kind of who stan is and why what motivates him yeah <laughs> yeah i think so <laughs> Yeah. And, and, you know, in some of those early interactions, we start to figure out what of he is sort of trying to prove himself. He's trying to gain favor with the different people that work in the circus. He is sort of uh, uh, shown to be attracted to uh, Rooney Meyer's character, Molly. Mm-hmm. He sort of finds some pseudo parents with Tony Collette's. I guess, the, are they also mental? She pretends to be a, a psychic of sorts. And they sort of, you know, they yeah. take him under their wing and start to kind of teach him some of their grift as they fully acknowledge is that what it is. Yeah, I think carnivals back then, they were fully aware that most of their shows were grifts and created for show. I think the thing that's interesting about Stan Bradley Cooper's character is that like you said, we kind of are left wondering who he is, where he comes from, what's going on, and in the whole movie, right? Like even when the he's whole time. Yeah. starting to get to know these people, you're not sure how much he's learning from them versus how much he's manipulating them. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because that's kind of where his mind is at the whole time, I think, is a fine line between you can only manipulate somebody if you learn about them. Yeah. And he, you know, very quickly kind of learns all the different ins and outs of the carnival, right? So mm-hmm. he kind of befriends Clem. Is that how he sort of initially gets a job? Is Clem played by Willem Dafoe? He helps Clem, I hate to say this, sort of like, get the one of the main acts back into its cage who is just mm-hmm. a man mm-hmm. and they they refer to him as a geek which is what they called basically clem kind of breaks down how they get a geek which is just like they basically find someone that's drunk mm-hmm. starve them and then eventually they're just sort of willing to do whatever they can to eat and you know and that's probably the most graphic scene of the movie in many ways is they show clem basically feeding this man a live chicken mm-hmm. and it's it is tough to watch you're kind of worried about where this movie is headed after that but then we kind of get uh, the sort of creation of the monster that stan becomes after he witnesses this experience and and he does kind of it feels like has empathy for this unnamed Mm-hmm. man that is the geek of the carnival mm-hmm. yeah it shows moments where he when they take him to like the hospital or whatever and he wants to put him out of the rain and things like that so there are these moments of caring but now that like we mention it i'm kind of like why like why did they put that in there yeah and i guess maybe it's so that we could think that he's a good guy maybe But to me, he never came across as a good guy. (laughs) Well, yeah, they're definitely trying to set him up. Well, right, because even even the sort of character that over time he invents is like this guy who's just like is very charismatic, right? He can Mm -hmm. kind of connect with anyone. He can have empathy for a person and kind of understand, you know, essentially what we learn is cold reading. But he can he can kind of see people and want to know who they are, Mm -hmm. want to know and understand them. And we see him even kind of showing this empathy towards towards this man in a cage who you kind of wonder, I, I was wondering and probably in some ways hoping like maybe he'll let the guy out. Like maybe, you know, after returning mm-hmm. to him to a cage, maybe he'll kind of see that this is like barbaric and terrible. And there are probably some better ways to entertain people. Mm-hmm. But gosh, because we see some of the more. I want to say harmless acts, you know, when we're introduced to Molly and we see the sort of fake strongman type of things that they're doing, which all feel very like cliche carnival type things. And all those are are sort of equally 
entertaining to people. And I think uh, if if Stan does have a talent, it's sort of like how to make something more dramatic or make something more uh, entertaining to the sort of common man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a salesman. He knows how to put on a show. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think speaking about like the man in the cage and just kind of Stan in general, I think it really speaks to how a lot of these traditions, whether it's a carnival show or whether it's mediums or mentalists, when it goes beyond just like, this is a silly show. So in the movie, it would have been like when it goes from like, just the show to like a spook show. Mm -hmm. What it really comes down to is manipulating people and then taking people who are vulnerable and using their vulnerabilities against them. For instance, like the the guys in the cage, you know, what you described is they take somebody who's lost everything and has nothing else. And you promise them just a little bit, like I'll give you breakfast in the morning and alcohol now. And then you tell them like, but you're not going to be good enough for this. So like Mm. you'll do for now. And then the person is desperate to be good enough. And then you know, you find them or they find themselves in a position that they don't want to be in because their desperation has been manipulated. And we see that with Stan later on in the movie with the mother of the lost, the the son who died at war. He yeah. manipulates her grief. Well, I guess, and Ezra Absolutely. Grindle, like he manipulates their grief mm-hmm. and their guilt and their shame. And tries to use it to his advantage. Yeah, and I think it, you know, zooming out here with the the whole why are carnivals, why historically have carnivals been popular mm-hmm. sources of entertainment, and then why is is Stan able to be successful as a mentalist? Is this sort of whole idea of people are interested and and maybe fascinated by the sort of extremes of humanity, both in terms of what they're capable of, what they suffer from or suffer with. And, you know, in a quote unquote controlled environment, being able to go see what looks from afar like a woman being able to be electrocuted is like, wow, that's amazing. Like, I would like to see that show. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, in the case of the the two person like uh, clairvoyant act that mm-hmm. Madame Zena perform. And it's and, it, and I think I, I like this, that it was all just sort of like we as the audience got to see like, no, this is just like a very simple like mirror trick where we're, Mm -hmm. you know, writing down things and making sure that the person who's doing the trick can see it. And, and there's nothing mystical going on here. These are people tricking other people, basically at the simplest notion, like for their money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And I think there's, there's some people who go in happy to be tricked Oh, yeah. And then there's some people who go in vulnerable, right? So I'm thinking like if I go into a mentalist show or a magic show, the entire time I am trying to figure out how they're doing it. So I'm going in happy to be tricked. Like I'm going in being like, I know Mm. you're doing something. I just don't know what it is. And I'm trying to figure it out. So I'm not going in being like, whoa magic right i'm going in like whoa how did you how did you do that what's the um, trick yes yeah, yes like, yes and i still to this day like i recognize that like mirrors and smoke and things like that help but truly like the fact that there is like a solid airplane on stage one second and then it's not on stage the next second i don't understand <laughs> <laughs> But I love it. And I like recognize that there is some trick to it. And, you know, when it's where I get nervous about it is when it starts doing kind of what the clairvoyant show does, which is like, hey, there's somebody here who wants answers about their life and I'm promising those answers. That's kind of like what we talked about with the Nicole Kidman series that we watched. Um, oh yeah nine perfect strangers yeah nine perfect Mm -hmm. strangers yeah we talked about like how the huge difference is promising answers versus promising the journey and i think that's where i get nervous is like if i go into a show and somebody's gonna promise me some answers to my vulnerability 
I'm going to get taken advantage of in that situation rather than, will you promise me a journey? Will you promise me? Mm. Like, for instance, you and I have talked in the past about like horoscopes and I've shared with you like, do I think they're the answer? No, I don't. Do I think they give me insight? Yeah. Like sometimes I'll go and I'll look at it and I'll be like, okay, how can I apply this to my situation? And what I think it does is it's, I don't see it as giving me an answer. I see it as giving me like a different way to look at my problem. And now I'm just rambling, but I think that that's kind of where I get nervous with shows like this. Well, totally. And that's what's so much so much interesting about the character that Tony Collette plays, Madame Zena, because she fully acknowledges like this is an act, this is a grift or whatever. But then at you know, later on in the movie when they're sort of reunited, um, when Molly reaches out to them, you know, she warns Stan by telling him, you know, she read his tarot cards and that, you know, if he went forward with the spook show that he was going to, you know, face these terrible consequences and then encouraged him to pull three cards mm-hmm. as if this was like a reasonable evidence to consider and not just like extra stuff. I mean, uh, to your point, I think it's like they could have pulled any cards and drawn whatever conclusions, but that would have just been evidence to which to kind of weigh their decisions, right? But mm-hmm. it was interesting to kind of have a character who like, like, no, this is still useful. And this is still kind of validates my view on the world. Mm-hmm. Well, what I think is the difference is what I was just kind of saying, which is yeah, promising that this is a reality versus promising like a structure. Because she says to him with the cards, she says, something like they give you, I'm making this up now, but this is essentially the message she tells them at the beginning, which is they give you generalities. You can do whatever you want with the cards is what she kind of says to him. And then when they come back later, he said, well, you always told me I can do whatever I want with the cards. And he turns the card around and says, look, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. But my argument would be like that card was still the hanged man, which is, Mm-hmm. still like it's not gonna go well <laughs> right right and i think that's kind of that same thing of she probably a lot like me recognizes that some things are grift and some things are also beyond explanation and mm. how do you use them to to be like to, for yourself and for others and i think that leads into that the question of when he goes from identifying watches and handkerchiefs and what's in your purse what's in my hand yeah which is fun and serves no point other than entertainment yep and goes into trying to like solve people's problems but by promising answers right so when he meets with I think that the doctor and his wife or the sergeant and his wife or however he's titled, he offers an answer. He says, oh, you'll be with your son soon. And mm-hmm. what he doesn't realize is like he thinks he's helping, right? Like he thinks he's calming her grief. Well, he says that. He says their, their marriage has never been better. Yeah. Uh-huh. Without realizing that like – he's just a tarot card for her. So she's going to do whatever she needs to do with that information, which ultimately she does, right? Like she heard the word we'll be with him, quote unquote, soon. And she's like, great, let's make it today. And she, you know, murder suicides. And that's where I think it can get dangerous if you tell people that you can give them answers. And I think this is where it differs from therapy, right? Like we go in saying like, I can't take your grief away. I can't give you answers. All I can help is is you come to answers for yourself in a a way that like is supportive. I, I appreciate the direction you're going because I think even even before Stan gets to this point when he's basically learning the grift, right? Mm-hmm. And I think um I I appreciate this because I am so anti-grift and anti-mentalist. I think for some of the reasons that you're identifying, that's like people's vulnerability is is being manipulated and taken advantage of. And 
just because that can produce emotional moments or emotional release as it does with the the woman whose son passed away and as, mm-hmm. as it does for people in real life as well people have real emotional experiences when mentalists or mediums claim to answer their questions or talk to their deceased loved ones for them. Mm-hmm. It can both provide those emotional moments, emotional releases, and also be very damaging mm-hmm. or very um, like unintentionally traumatic. You know, it's like a medium. And I guess people can and do see mediums like in an ongoing fashion, maybe in the same way that you might see a therapist. But mm goodness it's not it's not it's not the same i feel like that's obvious but i also want to make it really clear that it's it's not it's not the same not only that but it's it's the work is different and the work i think you and i would agree the work in therapy is is what helps you get to the place that mediums and and psychics and mentalists are trying to give you a shortcut for yeah. I think what it comes down to is curiosity versus confidence about somebody else's story. Mm. So sure. when I was learning how to become a therapist at grad school, I remember I compared something with a patient to birthday parties. Like I was like, or was it like fun? Like, or were you excited for it? Like a birthday party. And my supervisor was watching my tape and she said, oh, does she like birthday parties? And I was like, what do you mean? Everybody likes birthday parties. She goes, no, not everybody likes birthday parties. Mm. And what she was trying to show me was in that moment, I assumed this person's experience and I could have been horribly wrong, right? Like this person could have a really traumatic history with birthday parties and me going in with confidence would have been damaging in that moment. And in the movie, in the the show where Dr. Lily Ritter shows up and he's talking to the older man before he like passes out, before Stan like passes out from it getting too hard, he says like he wants you to know that he's proud of you. And yeah. in that moment, I had a reaction because I was like, oh my gosh, like what if that's exactly the wrong thing to say, right? Like what mm-hmm. if they know for a fact that this person is not proud of them. Yep. And I think that's the difference, right? We would go into it as a therapist, and obviously we're human, so occasionally we'll make mistakes, but we would oh, go sure. into it saying, do you think he would be proud of you? Or what would it feel like for him to say he's proud of you? Whereas if you are doing whatever Stan's doing, you go in and yep. you market confidently this is exactly you just what's call happening. it what you what you want it to be yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think it comes down to that line that's said in the beginning that people are desperate to tell you who they are they're desperate to be seen and and he uses that against them yeah and it's interesting because you know he was warned kind of not to go as far as he did not just by by Madame Zena, but also by her husband, Pete, who, you know, these were the two that kind of took him under their wing when he first joined the carnival. And in yet another example of Ryan not being aware of a murder happening, apparently Stan murdered Pete (laughs) or like slipped him a certain kind of alcohol that that made Pete die as opposed to Pete just, Uh I don't know, dying of natural clauses or, you Uh know, he was... Dealing with some some other issues. Mm-hmm. Did you get that from my notes? <laughs> well, no, I, I, oh. I didn't, didn't even look at your note, but uh, just in that specifically, but more just like in reading reviews afterwards, like, uh, wait, what are we talking about? Stan kills Pete. Like, uh-huh. what? So to be fair, my note is, yeah. wait a minute, did Bradley Cooper kill him? Question mark. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not perfectly clear, right. but... Willem Dafoe's character says to him at one point, like, this is what you use for the shows. And this is what you use for pickling. You definitely don't want to drink that. That'll yes, kill a man. He does. That's and right. then Pete asks Stan to bring him drink. And, like sugar alcohol, I think he says. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he gives him a bottle of something after going into Willem Dafoe's tent and then steals his book. And then he's dead. And so it's like, oh, well, this is convenient that he gave him a drink and then he dies. And now he has all of his knowledge. Yep. So that's what makes it pretty clear. And then later, 
Dr. Lily says to him something about like, and the man that you say that you killed or something like that, referencing Pete, which was also very confusing because I didn't understand where she got that information from. Right. Well, I was I was wondering if it was if that was referring to Pete or to Pete's presumptive, you know, whoever the body was that we didn't necessarily know yet, but who we later learned was Pete's father that he murdered. Stan's father. Um, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. Stan's father was the one that he murdered. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, you know, so Stan, we're, we're sort of, I think, left to intentionally not be totally clear about like, oh, well, is is this just like happenstance that now he has the book and has the knowledge and the skills and again goes off with Molly to make it in the big city? Meanwhile, it's like, you know, he was warned, you know, not to take advantage of people. And I think Pete very wisely, you know, acknowledges that, this is a skill and ability, but it's something that I think the quote he even says, like people are desperate to tell you who they are. They're desperate to be seen. Mm-hmm. So anytime someone thinks like you have this ability, they're going to want something from you. Mm-hmm. And it's a temptation as, as Stan pretty quickly experiences to kind of give them that thing that they want, even if it's you know moving closer and closer to what might not be good for them. And I think to bring it back to therapy, I think one reason why a lot of people really connect with certain therapists is because they get that feeling of being seen. And yes, one thing that your therapist should make very clear with you is that if you can do it with them, you can do it with someone else. And I think that that's really important to ethical <laughs> therapying um, is making it very clear to the patient that like you as a therapist are not magical or nope. special or unique in some way, but that you are another human that they are relating to. And if they can relate to you in this way, they can relate to others this way, whether it's other people in their life or the therapist after you. And if you are Stan, you want Ezra Grindle to believe that no one else can do it. Only you can do it because that gets you more money. That gets you to be the one that makes it through the the lie detector test. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think we were talking about, you know, the sort of ways in which therapy does and does not resemble, you know, what Stan is doing, mentalism, things like that. And I think it's important because we meet a a therapist uh, later on in the movie, Dr. Lilith Ritter, and she, you know, she's very interesting for a, a 1940s psychologist. She's a very fancy office, mm-hmm. a very fancy like technological recording setup, mm-hmm. which as in many therapist on screen tropes, she kind of uses for her own manipulation, uses for her own advantage um, in dealing with Stan. But in the sense that mentalists do what they refer to as cold reading, mm-hmm. which uh, early on in the movie, they kind of break down exactly in some senses how they do that through like coded words or signals, things like that. To your point, I think people often wonder or assume if therapists either can or in fact are doing that with their patients. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and not only with their patients, but just with humans in general. Or with, with anyone, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Anytime you introduce yourself as a therapist, it's yeah. like, oh, are you, are you analyzing me right now? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember yeah. probably about, I don't know, five, six years ago, I met a man and he was like, are you psychoanalyzing me right now? And I was like, you're an accountant. Yeah. Are you doing my taxes right now? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but truly, like people think that – and. Hollywood, I think, plays a huge role in this, but think that totally psychologists, therapists have this like higher level of knowledge about human behavior and how the brain works. And, and sure, we have the scientific research that gives us a background of understanding the generalities of how human behavior works, but we still can't 
tell the future. We still can't read minds. And that's right. I think people assume that we can. And interestingly enough, a huge difference is like mentalists actually probably have a more intimate knowledge of like kind of reading people's body language or little hints about them than therapists do because we learn theory of processing. We don't learn Mm -hmm. if somebody twitches or covers their mouth or stands on their left hip, what that may mean about their past or their current. (laughs) We may learn little hints here and there, right? Like, oh, this person is fidgeting. Clearly they're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like we'll learn things like that, but not to the extent where like Stan says like, oh, I saw his shoes, which suggested that he possibly had a history of something like polio or something like that. Yeah. There is a certain amount of uh, reading that we're doing in the sense of like, Noticing uh, nonverbal communication, body language, you know, and we'll we'll definitely use that information because that's always that's also communication, right? If you're yeah. tapping your toe, that might indicate something, and we won't we won't uh, at least we will try not to assume what that means, but we might point it out and be curious. I think that's the an important difference. Yeah. You know, we're not going from oh you're doing this that means x mm-hmm. i'm gonna now tell you something about yourself but instead hey i'm noticing this and you're saying this or you're you're communicating this feeling but i'm also knowing this about you mm-hmm. what do you what do you think about that or explain that or, or tell me a little bit about you know what's going on in your mind right now so it's really just helping a, a person increase their own self-awareness as opposed to me telling you because I'm noticing this about you, this is what now I also know about you through the power of mentalism or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that mentalism is fascinating. Sure. The people who can come in and say, like, I know what word you're going to think of, and, and they write it down on a piece of paper, and then they talk, and then you write down a word, and it's the same word. And that's super fascinating to me how like basically through verbal cues you can trick somebody into thinking certain things and it's called priming so in psychology it would be like if you say to someone like oh my god are you nervous are you so nervous about this and they're like no and you're like oh really i'm nervous now they go into whatever study they're going to be doing they're primed to be nervous. And so they're more likely to rate themselves as nervous and things like that because it was suggested to them that they should be nervous. And that's kind of how mentalists and other people who claim to, to read minds or read the universe work. Whereas a therapist might say like, I just noticed a lot of like, thinking happening (laughs) like Mm -hmm. i saw on your face like a lot of pensiveness what's going on in your brain yeah so it's a little again curious versus confident yeah and i would say you know we we might point out things that are like incongruent right Mm -hmm. that's like oh we're talking about something very serious but you're laughing now a mentalist might make a conclusion based off of that behavior Whereas we, as you just said, sort of might point it out in a curious way of, you know, hey, you know, we're we're talking about this this very sad event that you experienced, but I also see you smiling and laughing or, or sort of giggling, you know, what's going on? And, and all in this sense of you increasing your own self-awareness, not me kind of like, you know, oh, pointing things out and like, now I'm going to tell you like the secret of what that means and how we're going to, you know, undo all of your trauma with this one little trick. Yeah. I always tell my patients, if I had the answers, I'd be much richer than I am. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think like this movie kind of points that out, right? Like if Stan hadn't pushed it too far, he could have gotten very Mm -hmm. rich because he promised us to have Well, that's that's such a weird thing about the movie because it, it feels like he was becoming rich and I don't, it's not quite clear because he makes that first amount of money with the first family that, you know, obviously ends up going very poorly. But <laughs> it seemed like him and Molly were having a great shot, a great time just like doing pretty entertaining mentalism shows. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, you know, his 
his eyes or what's you know his eyes got bigger than his stomach or whatever the the phrase yeah. would be it's like yeah. you know he just wanted more despite all the insistence of everyone around him he couldn't Great. stop and and i think you know if you read about some of the famous mentalists <laughs> ego often does become a problem i don't know if you've watched any of those like uh, magician documentaries or um, mentalist documentaries Mm -mm. Um, it's fascinating stuff out there because there are people or, uh, there are people who, uh, and the, the one guy that I know specifically, his name is James Randi. And for the longest time, he just had like a public offering. It was like, I will pay you $10,000 if you prove beyond the shadow of a doubt with my conditions that you have like a mystical or, or some kind of ability that cannot be explained with science. Mm -hmm. And no one ever got his money. You know, he would have all these different people on that claim to have these different abilities and no one was able to prove it because, I mean, it is a trick. <laughs> <laughs> Says Ryan, just kidding. <laughs> Says me. Uh, uh, but I think that's people want it to be true and then once you get that validation as stan experiences like this rush he gets to wear these fancy suits and his fancy blindfolds and have people ooh and ah at him knowing what's in a handbag and i think it's interesting because he has the the one challenge of the the psychologist come in and he's you know thrown off but is able to best her for whatever um if we want to call it that where he's able to kind of make this prediction about what's in her bag despite her not being part of the show mm -hmm. which he then later explains and i think that experience kind of yes he yeah. does and and it, and it was essentially a cold read yeah. that you know and and a lot of these cold reads are, are, are luck also because if mm -hmm. you ever another thing to funny thing to google or youtube is like like mentalist or mediums being caught being wrong where it's just <laughs> like either they're pulling at strings that are totally off or it's like, oh, I'm getting a this letter, or I'm getting a this name, and the person's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't have anyone. Like that's not not me. <laughs> uh -huh. And you see that's like, okay, that's that's where the magic ends, and then it just kind of is very awkward and sad. But I think for Stan, he gets this rush of being right with you know with uh, the doctor, and it's like, okay. I can push this even further. I can do the spook show. I can, you know, and, and the whole time, you know, to kind of cut to the end of the, you know, how he gets himself really into trouble, the whole time, as soon as he suggests to Molly, like, you can pretend to be this woman, you can pretend to be a ghost, basically. Mm -hmm. It feels so obvious that it's not going to go well. Yeah. Did, did you feel that that was, that was the case as well? Oh, certainly. Yeah. But it's the same thing as as soon as somebody offers you $10,000 to prove it. I know. It's not going to yeah. work, right? Like, I'm not saying that it, it works anyway, but, but I think that that, yeah, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that, like, he wasn't going to get away with it because he was trying to promise something that he could not do, right? So if you promise somebody that you can speak to the the other side sure like you can do that because nobody can prove you wrong right mm -hmm. but as soon as you tell somebody like oh i will make a ghost appear in front of you well how do you plan on doing that right <laughs> yeah but i think to to your point like he um he hadn't really failed yet right so he you know he saved the carnival from the police uh -huh. and he did all these great shows uh with molly you know he was able to do the initial spook show with the the couple that lost their son to the war so as far as he knows he can do this no matter what i mean he basically beat the uh, the lie detector test i mean he didn't mm -hmm. like they immediately knew he was lying but he was able to kind of throw him off so as far as he's concerned, like even if he's under pressure, he's going to be able to and his prediction of like, I'm going to get him. He's going to get this guy into like a, a prayer stance. He's going to get him mm -hmm. kneeling and then like you'll just be able to walk away. And like, of course, as soon as he thought he saw his like deceased wife, he was going to like run after yeah. her. And did he admit to being like a, a serial killer in that moment? Just by the way. Well, Either either a serial killer or like a serial assaulter, you know, person. Because yeah. I think what was also unclear is whether Lily's really messed up 
scar on her chest was from the rich guy or not. Oh, that never even occurred to me. I don't know. Okay. Interesting. Well, to speak to your idea of like him kind of being like he hadn't failed yet, what I was going to say is in the same way priming works, we can prime ourselves. So these ideas of like look at yourself in the mirror and – tell yourself that you're kind, you're smart, you're important. The daily affirmations, the taking a very specific power stance before an interview, things like that can really prime ourselves to believe the things that we're saying because those neurons repeatedly fire together, which means they get used to firing. And in addition, another thing that happens in the human brains is cognitive dissonance, which is when you believe something, but you say something or do something else, one of those things has to change. Either the behavior has to change or the belief has to change because otherwise it's it's kind of hard for a human to hold those dichotomies. So for yeah. Stan, I think what happens is he starts to believe that he truly can do this stuff to an extent, right? He also is, a, is aware that it's a grift, but like he yep. believes that he can get away with the grift and it doesn't occur to him that he won't get away with it. In the same way that earlier you've said like you've watched documentaries on mentalists and magicians and things like that and kind of like their ego gets too big and gets in the way. And that's the same thing, yep. right? Like they yeah, totally. prime themselves and they have this cognitive dissonance to the point where like they start to believe that they can do it. And and I think that that happens a lot for people who, well, let me just say this, like if somebody were to tell me like people can literally talk to the dead or see ghosts or do magic, I'd be like, sure, I believe it. However, I don't believe that those people would do it to the extent that we see it in public Mm. and getting money. Like, I don't think they would make it, I don't think they would make it into a job. So those people who I don't believe have a gift, I think they start to believe that they do because of this priming and this cognitive dissonance. And if you tell yourself something enough, it's going to become true in your narrative. Well, right. And if people uh, come to you for this specific problem often enough, it doesn't starts to feel like not a grift anymore. It starts to feel like not a trick. It's just like, no, I can give them exactly what they're looking for, uh-huh. you know, whether it's a trick or not. You know, they want to talk to their, their dead son. We, right. we did it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I think... You know, you really see the in the inflation of of his ego over time, and then of course, it all comes crashing down. He, you know, obviously Stan uh, Stan's attempt to pretend to bring you know the the man's wife back from the dead doesn't go well. He has to kill two people just to get away from that mm-hmm. uh, location. Um, Molly, I think, very wisely <laughs> leaves him. Yeah, and then he's sort of double betrayed by Dr. Ritter, Mm -hmm. which I did not see coming. If I'm being honest, I thought that was like a fun twist in that. I don't, do you think she was trying to kind of get him the whole time? Yeah. I think from the very beginning when he made a fool of her, she wanted revenge. Yeah. Did I see it coming? Not in the way that it happened. I for sure thought that she was going to like do something, (laughs) but I didn't see it. And again, this brings it back to that trope of like the therapist is four steps ahead and like, you know, she knew that he would do this. And so she manipulated it. And then because she's a therapist, she just gets to be like, you're crazy and like gaslight him basically. But yeah, it was Wild. I think since we're getting close to the end, I think something that's important for us to kind of talk about is in the end, obviously, he finds himself the one who's desperate, right? And the one who is 
has needs that are begging to be met and he goes to a carnival and he basically is faced with a grift that tells him he's going to be taken advantage of. Do mm-hmm. you think that he is so far desperate that he doesn't realize it's happening or do you think he chooses it for himself kind of as like self punishment? Yeah, I think it's much more self punishment. You know, okay. he's feeling the weight of all these people that he's killed at this point, his father, uh, Pete, um, you Ezra know, and uh, his Ezra and his bodyguard, he pushed Molly away that to him, this was almost like the right thing for him to now have to do like his punishment. That's how it felt to me. I mean, now we could also easily say that, um, you know, much like the initial geek, he might've just been so lost and de- desperate that it, he was laughing. It was just sort of funny at like, yeah, yeah, I was born for this. And, you know, whether we're taking him at face value for that statement or not, it does sort of fit the, uh, fit the, the circle. Yeah. Well, and then also it, it plays into that question of man or monster. And he was like, I was born for this yeah. role. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, the idea that, uh, that Stan is then, you know, the one in the cage or the, the one in the pit with the chickens is, mm-hmm. is, is pretty wild to see kind of how far his, his story went and it was also interesting in in you know the sort of new world when he returns to the carnival it's like oh we're not we're not really into mentalists anymore mm-hmm. and i was sort of wondering you know i was half expecting him to be like well yeah ever since this you know we heard about these murders that happened with a mentalist like we don't we don't have that that stuff around anymore like people are freaked out by it but they didn't sort of totally play into that that part of stan's history well and also i think it's a greater narrative about humanity, one that has often intrigued me, but basically like the mentalism is like the entertaining, right? It's not a spook show. It's yeah. not any of that. It's just like, who I know what watch it is blindfolded. What hasn't yeah, sure. gone out of fashion is the geek, right? Which is... Yeah, yeah. Is like you said earlier, like the extent we as humans are interested in like the extremes of humanity. And I think it really speaks about human nature where like when there is and trigger warning here, when there are videos online of people being beheaded or when there is yeah. news about injury or torture or things like that, people read it. And are fascinated mm-hmm. by Watch it. it. Yep. And mm-hmm. I think it really kind of speaks to how something like mentalism can go out of fashion, but something like the geek never does. Now, granted, that's gone out of fashion now, but like it's just found its way into like. Well, it's gone out of, boy, out of, out of fashion as a profession, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still by, by no means is it out of fashion in the sense of like something that people are, are fascinated by and and even to a certain extent like seek out those types of stories. Mm-hmm. You know, so because you know, if anything, like mentalism is still very much having a moment, right? You can you can go on any social media and, you know, and, you know, look up people who are you know, claiming to speak to the dead or who can do those sorts mm-hmm. of tricks and, you know, and they're doing just fine for themselves. Yeah, many are. And again, I feel like if yeah. someone had a gift, they wouldn't monetize it. It's like we talked about in yeah. it with superpowers where we were like, if I had a superpower, I wouldn't want the responsibility. Like I would just want to kind of keep it to myself. Like the weight of it. Yeah. 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 So interesting. So on a scale from one to five. Um, Do we want to reference the baby with three eyes? <laughs> <laughs> well, I that, that was actually the first thing that um, came to mind. But I was like, that feels too obvious. But we can. On a scale from one to five. Why am I blanking on this whole movie? Okay. Hmm. On a scale from one to five golden pocket watches with an inscription on the back of it. (laughs) Mm. Um, How accurate did you feel that this portrayed humanity and mental health, et cetera? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I think in the sense of like people being desperate for 
the quote unquote service that Stan is providing. I think all of that felt really accurate. Mm-hmm people being sort of fascinated and, and uh, you know, him becoming this sort of person with this big ego and, and you know, so charming, all this charisma. And it's like, and he's sort of uh, frequently, um, you know, complimented for his ability to kind of connect with people. And I forget the someone someone calls him like a something with good teeth. <laughs> uh, that felt like a really good, uh, a really good insult and sort of description of essentially what he's doing. So I think in in for the most part this felt like really accurate in terms of like a portrayal of humanity's search and as we said before like to be seen to be yeah. able to tell their story and like a mentalist is like the perfect channel for which people you know unfortunately in many cases like take the opportunity to be seen. Mm-hmm. So in that sense I would say its accuracy is like a like a four. I wouldn't go too much higher than that just because so much of the other stuff that we saw with Stan, the multiple murders and the like trying to get away with things and even like the extent to which he could cold read people felt like he was like they were making him to be out be, to be even better than what I felt like people should have been able to catch on to this sooner than they did. Yeah. Like Ezra in particular, like it was clear that he was on to him especially his bodyguard was and he just kind of kept coming back to like but you can bring her back right like you know still desperately wanted that to happen even though he was very skeptical throughout the whole experience so that's where i'm going i'm going for i think that you went pretty high considering there was a whole therapist in there who was like very poorly represented (laughs) um but for what you shared i think you're correct yeah. 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 So that's that's a good point. And especially with the 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 therapist as like a pseudo villain, pseudo like manipulative villain in her own right. That's all they ever are. That probably <laughs> brings it down. I know. That probably brings it down another notch. Okay, that's yeah. a good point. Let's say like three point six. Okay. But I like I like to think about it more from the sense of like the audience that was dealing with these people than the sort of you know the some of the main characters themselves. I think it's an interesting like societal study. But how about the entertainment value? So let's say on a scale of five uh, jars with creepy things in them, how many uh, how many jars would you give uh, on an entertainment value to Nightmare Alley? Yeah, I think I would give it four, four and a half jars of entertainment value um it's a two and a half hour movie and it did not feel that long at no point was i like oh my god is how much longer is this gonna be yeah there were points where i like checked how long it had been going because i was just curious but it i was invested the whole time i like a movie with a double twist this type of movie I could take or leave, but I thought it was fun and the cast was incredible. I also really liked the question at the end of like, did he choose this for himself? Like he knows this trap and he's stepping into it. I thought that I love endings like that, like endings that don't mm, ambiguous. Totally, yeah. yeah, like they're pretty clear what they're saying, but they don't actually say it. I love endings like that. And this had it. So, yeah, I would say four, four and a half. I thought it was very entertaining. I also thought it was very artistic. So, you know, I won't be surprised if this wins awards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, a lot of acting, a lot of great acting um uh, examples, cinematography, like all the environments I was really sucked into. Um, so yeah, for sure. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I said before, I think I'll watch any Guillermo del Toro um, mm-hmm. movie. I think he's just really, really good. And this was a great example that it doesn't have to be, you know, fantastical imaginary monsters. You know, we, we are, we are the monsters sometimes. So yeah, so so ends another episode of Pop Psych, Haley. Um, um, I know we have some other exciting ones coming up. Yeah, yeah. When this comes out, the Oscars will already be done, so we'll know 
who won and if it was this one or Power of the Dog or Coda or Encanto or any of the ones that we did or if it was something we haven't done yet. And maybe, depending on what it is, depending on what one, we might do that in the future. Totally. Yeah. So please send us your recommendations or requests. Um, we greatly appreciate them. And we look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Bye. Bye.